Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven, and on on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. and. Lord, that, that you did these things, that you, God, wrote this story. Lord, as we consider you today, Lord, open our mind, open our hearts to the things you want to show us. And Lord, help us know how to respond and draw closer to you. Everyone said, amen. Okay, grab a seat. So good morning, welcome. I'm Richard, if we've not met. Uh, really glad that you're here. And it's Advent. And uh, I mean, we sent out lots of the kids. I'm looking like there's not actually that many in the room. Who knows how many sleeps it is until Christmas morning? Okay, it's, it's not a kid, but like you're on it. You're counting, I like it, yeah. The excitement is building. I was sort of, yeah, I was hoping we would have all the middle schoolers in the room and that would really lift the excitement level. Uh, we, re, we need, they come to the 11. And, uh, and they're not in bed, they're all serving in kids, uh, which is great. But the excitement is building, and that's what Advent is all about. It's this season, as we draw close to Christmas and prepare for it, we, we want our, our understanding, our appreciation, our excitement to kind of build and build because it's something so important and so significant. And we've been on this journey the last few weeks. We began looking at the cosmic king. This baby born in a manger, but he's the cosmic king, the king of the whole universe, and he's changing the, the powers and the principalities of the whole universe, setting things to order. And he's also the king of kings on the earth. So he's bringing hope for actually like kingdoms and social ills. He's going to right injustice. He's going to heal those who have been abused uh, through the misuse of power. Uh, he's going to set things to right. Like there's, there's hope for earth, for like society. And that, like last week we looked at the Magi coming. You know, these, uh, these astrologers, these wise men, but actually from like a foreign court. 
from another kingdom coming and uh, you know, despite the fact that they represent another kingdom, sort of paying deference to this new king because he is actually hope for all of the nations and all the kingdoms. Like his reign is bigger than anyone else's reign. But this week we get to the more personal question. Okay, so all this is going on on a grand scale, but what about me? Like, is there hope in Christmas for the lived experience of my day-to-day life? Like, does Jesus' reign change something to my tomorrow morning? Like, does it matter at that level? You know, or does it just like somehow filter down to it eventually? Like, that's the question. And this is why looking at the shepherds is so important for us. And so I want to set the scene for us, okay? Um, If you've watched a nativity play, okay, you're used to some of the elements of this scene. So Mary and Joseph, okay, this young couple, betrothed, okay, they're connected, they're committed to marriage, but they haven't consummated the marriage because the angel came and told Mary, hey, you're going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. So it's a really weird beginning to a marriage. And she is eight months pregnant, traveling because they've got to register for a census miles and miles and miles across country, okay, to arrive in Bethlehem. And uh, any woman who's been eight months pregnant and has had to go last minute on a shopping trip will tell you, like, just countenancing this, okay, this is already a scene of hardship and trouble and, and things being really difficult. And they go on this long journey and they arrive in Bethlehem and there's no room. Like there's no room to stay with friends and family or they would often have like public lodgings like where, where travelers could stay together um, and there's no room. So they end up in the room where the animals stay, okay? So they're mucking in with the animals. So yeah, this, it's not a scene of comfort. It's not like they, you know, they got into town after a long journey. It was really hard and, you know, and they booked into the Marriott and they got the last suite, Okay. This is like, no, sorry, but like, you can stay in the bin store around the back. That's all we've got. Like, that's all that's available. So it's, it's a really humble and lowly scene. And surprisingly so, okay? I mean, our series is about he shall reign. Like, a king has come, and where do we find it? Not in a palace. Like, this is a really surprising place to find a king. And... The thing about the difference between a palace and this scene is this is not an intimidating scene. I don't know if you've ever like, you know, visited London and walked down the mall to Buckingham Palace. Yeah, and, you know, I thought to yourself, like, I'll, I'll knock on the door. Yeah, I bet they'll invite me in for some tea and sandwiches. Like, it's kind of intimidating, isn't it? And, and there's something about like, authority and power that is intimidating. But this scene, okay, in with the animals, with hay and straw on the floor, and poop, and all the rest. Okay, this is not an intimidating scene. In fact, the only thing you need to enter this scene is some humility. If you think of yourself being up here, you probably not want to go go in. And so it just oozes humility. And it's sort of surprising, okay? Like, God himself is coming as a king, Where does he show up? How does he show up? Who does he show up to? Not to the powerful, okay? Not to politicians. Not to the wise, okay? I know the Magi were wise men, but they came like a year and a bit later, okay? So the beginning of this scene, okay? Not to the wise. 
but he comes among the ordinary, everyday lives of normal, ordinary people. And there's something really important about that. And it gets underlined by who he invites. And so we have these shepherds on a hillside, okay? So God is going to celebrate the birth of his son. And you can tell it's party time because the angels, like the, the veil gets pulled back and we see the angels are like having this party in heaven, okay? So God's like, it's party time. Like I'm doing it. Like I'm coming to earth. I'm doing the thing I said I'm going to do. Who gets invited? Like who's going to come celebrate? Who's going to participate? Who's going to be included in this scene? A bunch of shepherds on a hillside guarding their flocks. All right, and shepherds, we have a sort of, uh, you know, we've seen them on too many Christmas cards. We're like, oh, shepherds. So they're so, in, so beautiful. You know, if you've had a small child, you've dressed them with a tea towel on their head, you know, and you're just like, it's, it's such a wonderful, beautiful thing. Well, shepherds in the first century, they were not the movers and shakers, okay, that they are in the nativity play today. They, they were kind of on the fringes of society, okay? They, they were at the bottom of the scale of like social power and privilege. They were on the bottom rung of the ladder. And that's who gets invited. That's who God brings along. And what they experience on the hillside is so surprising. It's actually shocking. Okay? An angel appears and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And, and we can get used to reading that, but this is the temple glory. Like God's expression of his glorious presence that is reserved for the holy of holies in the temple. And it's broken out and it's on a hillside by Bethlehem. And they're experiencing it. And, and so and it says uh, in verse 10, um, the angel has to say to them, don't be afraid. Because that's going to be their immediate thought like, oh no, what did you do? Like they're all looking at each other. Like, are we in trouble? Okay, because this is, I mean, this is what happens. This is really normal. If an angel showed up now, we would all have this like, uh-oh, moment, okay? So it's really normal. But what God does, he said, don't be afraid. And actually, I love this theme through the nativity. God comes to Mary, don't be afraid. Comes to Joseph, don't be afraid. Comes to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Um, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel that will cause great joy for all the people because today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And so fear gets dispelled and they get invited and included. And, and this amazing opportunity to go and experience this cause of joy for themselves. Not just to like read about it in the headlines. Uh, I guess we don't really do that anymore to get a tweet about it, uh, to get a notification, like, like not just to rejoice like, oh, that's going on in the world, that's cool, but to go and experience it and to be made joyful for themselves. Like this is God's heart to celebrate this event. It's bringing joy to God, there's joy in heaven. And God wants the people he's trying to reach to experience this joy for themselves, to go see that hope realized, that God is doing the thing that he said he would do. And this is, uh, like the, the shepherds understood this, they lived in this storyline of this hope that the Messiah King, the anointed one would come. <coughs> the, the one who's going to change everything, change the course of sin and brokenness, 
and bring healing and redemption and restoration. Like he, <clears throat> he's here and he's here for the whole cosmos and he's here for the nation of Israel. He's here for the promises made to his covenant people, the shepherds. He's also here for you. The God who brings joy has come to you. Like that's the interaction going on with these shepherds. And the veil between heaven and earth has been peeled back and they're experiencing that moment of heaven crashing into earth on a hillside. And in the afterglow of that, like that profound reality, they go to the stinky animal shelter and see this baby lying in a manger. And their heart overflows with joy because here is their king. Here is their savior. It's a... It's an amazing restoration moment where the divine reality has become present and tangible and close to them. It's not like over the hill in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies where it, like, it can't be touched. But it's right, it's close. And it's something they can experience. And between the manger and the shepherds and all the details in this scene, God is doing something quite surprising. Like the, the God who powerfully created the whole universe. Like that God, the really, really stinking powerful one. God who is so much bigger than we can comprehend. Okay, the God who does miracles, who, who judges sin, who parted the Red Sea, who saves and heals. The God who knows everything. That God, okay, this extraordinary God is making himself known in the ordinary. And it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. This is a pattern throughout the Bible. Like God often shows up to ordinary people. And it's really important. Um, this is not just something God can do and occasionally does. But right here at a pivotal moment, at one of the most important moments in history, it's the first thing God does. The first thing God does is to show up to some ordinary people in an ordinary place. And, and later on, as Jesus goes about his mission and he's building this team of people who, who are witnesses of his life and his death and his resurrection, who does he choose? Who does he include? Not politicians, not millionaires. There's no Elon Musk, okay? It's, it's fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, like a doubting local rabbi, poor widows, people crippled by disease and spiritual oppression, like those people. And it's not in palaces and temples and courtrooms. I mean, Jesus goes to those places, but predominantly he's in homes and on hillsides and in the marketplace and on the road. He's in the ordinary places with ordinary people. And these ordinary people who had so many reasons to think that they were excluded, discover God revealing himself to them. And I want to I get like theology nerd about the incarnation because the reality of the nature of the incarnation undergirds this point in a really important way. And we sing about it every Christmas, or at least I hope you do. I hope you love carols as much as I do. Carols are like hymns about Christmas and the incarnation, which is one of my favorite bits of theology. Um, but they're also so rich in theology. You can just like, you can poke them and little bits of theology come, 
come out. Uh, they're, they're so full of ideas. Uh, like this uh, middle verse from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. So Christ, this amazing, exalted being, like the king, the king of kings, late in time, behold him come. So when it's time, look, he's arrived, offspring of a virgin's womb. This exalted Christ, this amazing God, this I can't even begin to comprehend how big he is, God has come as a baby of a human young woman. And veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. As the shepherds go to see, they go to see their God, but they also go to see a baby. And veiled in flesh, like you're actually seeing the Godhead, you're seeing God himself. But if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it because you'll think, oh, it's just a baby. It's kind of veiled. Like you, you need God to reveal what's going on. And God doing this, Jesus showing up this way, pleased as man with man to dwell. So ple he's pleased to become a human being, to come and be with human beings. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So beautiful. The fullness of God, the Godhead, the deity itself has become a human being and God was pleased to do this. In an even older carol, O come all ye faithful, one of the middle verses, God of God, light of light, like profound, huge, you know, like they appear and you hide under the duvet, like, oh no, like, uh-oh, it's that big God. Look, he abhors not the virgin womb. He doesn't shy away from coming as a baby. He pleads, he's pleased to enter in this way. Very God, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. The fullness of God doesn't shrink back from expressing himself to us by becoming this incarnate baby, by becoming vulnerable. And, and you know what? The, that's such an important word because he lives a life of vulnerability. And his vulnerability escalates and crescendos into the ultimate expression of this self-giving love as he becomes vulnerable to the cross and dies. Like it's a theme through his whole life. And this truth, it's stated in Colossians, one of my favorite verses, Colossians 2.9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Like all, all of it. What a profound truth. Like in Christ, in this human, where God has become a human being, in this human life dwells all of the fullness, none of it left out. And it's a, it's a truth that gets explained in one of the earliest Christian songs that we find in Philippians chapter two. So we'll just read this. Uh, it's talking about uh, Jesus and his attitude of giving himself, uh, which is, and it's something Paul's saying about how we should emulate, but it just to lay out the truth of how Jesus came and gave himself. So Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say grasped. Like the, the power, the privilege, the glory of being this spiritual being, God, dwelling 
in heaven, in intimate, like close connection with the Father in the throne room of the whole universe. Jesus didn't want to cling to that. It's like, okay, I'm going to like, I can come back away from that scene. I can move out of that way of being. And rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He translates how he's going to live his person, his life, from that way into this human baby way. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. On a cross. The, um, the, the third line of this song, he made himself nothing, is literally he emptied himself. Like all of the benefits of how he lived his life and how he had lived his life from eternity past in this intimate connection with the Father, he emptied himself and said, I am going to express my person. I'm going to live my life through all the limitations of being a human, beginning with being a baby. Because God could have just done some miracle and showed up as like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, but no, as a baby. And by becoming a human, he didn't stop being God. He, he expresses his divinity so well, so thoroughly, that Colossians can say, in this human, the fullness of the deity dwells. It, it's, it's this perfect revelation of who God is. <coughs> there is so much to nerd out on around these truths. Um, but... Here's one really important part that connects to looking at these shepherds and answering this question like, what does Christmas have to do with me? The fact of the incarnation is proof of the possibility of relationship with God. That's a really important idea. The fact that God could fully express himself as a human being and still be God and actually <clears throat> express God's heart, express his relationship with the Father and the Spirit as a human being is proof that, that relationship with God is possible. As we celebrate this cosmic king, this king of kings, uh, as we sort of lift up our eyes to the power and the profound majesty and authority of Jesus, we might wonder, like, is he kind of too out there? And not too out there like he's weird, like Jesus is just left field. But like he's up here and I'm like barely in the carpet. Like can I have something to do with this king? Can I relate to this king? Like is he just so otherworldly that there's just no connection? That's what the incarnation is actually revealing to us. God designed human beings as his image bearers to be made in the likeness of God. We were designed for a relationship with God. And Jesus, God incarnate, proves that this container of humanity is sufficient for that design, that it works, that God's design works. And not just a little bit, but actually fullness of connection with God, fullness of relationship with God is possible as a human being. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what he came and lived. That's what he reveals to us.
God's design works. Unless you say to yourself, well, yeah, but you don't know what kind of human I am. Okay, it's all very well for Jesus. But like, if you only knew, like the weird kind of dark microcosm of cosmic easel that's like barreling away inside of my heart, you wouldn't be able to say that. Well, listen to this in Romans 8. We're picking up right in the middle of like one of Paul's grand 16-page-long arguments here, so it might not like fully make sense, but we've got to grasp the bit in the middle. He says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Did you catch that in the middle? Jesus came not in the likeness of super flesh, not in the likeness of pseudo humanity. Okay, he wasn't Captain America. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus lived a life that had to overcome all the weakness and all the temptation of being an ordinary human being in a world beset by evil and temptation and brokenness. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Like Jesus overcame all of those temptations. Like any voice in our head that says, yeah, but like I, I have sinful flesh. Okay? Like, surely that's an obstacle. What Jesus proves is that that is an obstacle that is not insurmountable. Because Jesus has surmounted it. Jesus has overcome it. Jesus proves it. He shows it. And actually, the rest of what's going on in Romans 8 explains the how. And it's to do with his reign. Okay? It it, it talks about how we have this flesh. And this is like a New Testament Bible term for that part of our life, our soul, our being, our person that is entrenched, like deeply woven together with brokenness and evil and sin. That's actually mired and dominated by sin and death. And Paul explains how our flesh, like that broken version of our deepest desires, longings, impulses, intentions, like all of that weakness, okay, it sits on the throne of our life. It reigns in us, which is why the power of sin and death, like they're they're like a tide that as it rises and falls, we have as much chance of going to the beach and holding back the ocean. Because the, the powers of evil Actually, their expression in our brokenness sits on the throne of our life. But what Jesus does is Jesus comes in the weakness of sinful flesh with all the possibility of sin and death reigning and he conquers that power. He conquers its reign. He undoes its reign through the way he lives his life. Okay, never giving in to temptation, never giving in to evil always standing up for justice and love, always expressing his father's heart and doing his father's will. 
And so Jesus creates this new human life. He's born into it, but he lives, and as he lives, he creates it. And the most profound challenge to it is the cross. Okay? And in Gethsemane, Jesus you know, is there facing death, and he says, not what I will, but what the Father wills, because of the joy of rescuing humans. I will do this. I will lay down my life. I'll give up my life. So, so Jesus creates this perfect life. And, and here's the beautiful bit. He doesn't keep it to himself. The same spirit that filled Jesus' life and enabled him to live that life and to be connected to the Father, that same spirit is offered as a gift to those who will entrust their life to Jesus to be their rescuer, to be their savior. And when we do that, when we say, I'm broken, I have a flesh ruling in my life, I need rescuing. What Jesus does is he comes into our life and gives us that same spirit and that spirit knocks the flesh off the throne. The flesh gets dethroned in our life and Jesus sets himself up on the throne of our life. And his reign operating in us through us starts to redeem and heal and change us, our life, our lived experience, our day to day. Like Jesus' reign has to do with your tomorrow morning, it has to do with now, it has to do with this afternoon. Like it's in such close contact. Like every, every little moment where we feel the light within us of God's spirit wanting to stand up to the kingdom of darkness, it's Jesus' reign in us that means things can go differently than when our flesh used to reign. That is amazingly good news. And that takes us back to where we started. Like Jesus' reign, it shapes the cosmos, it changes nations. Like God can make kingdoms rise and fall. God can prophesy about the future. You know, God can do all of these amazing things. But one of the things that the shepherds show us is that God is interested in reigning in you to bring you joy, that you will experience these things. And Christmas, every year, puts this reality in front of us. Such a good rhythm of grabbing hold of that once again. But the question is like, how do I interact with that? What do I do with that? Like, how do I put that in my pipe and smoke it? Like, what do, what do I do? Well, the, the shepherds, they show us the way. In, in verse 15, they respond, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Let us go and see. Come and experience it. Encounter the manger. Go be with Jesus. See him for yourself. They didn't wait to see what would happen. Would have been really easy, like in our kind of cynical Western mindset, we totally would have sat, you know, sat down and be like, well, what do you think about that? Oh, I don't know. You know, just cautious. <laughs> like, I guess, you know, let's like move to the edge of the hillside and look over and like see what everyone else does. You know? <laughs> they, they don't wait to see if they get a better offer. Okay? They, they don't do their research and be like, well, you know, maybe on Prime Day, because, you know, there might be a sale. They, they don't wait to see, like, maybe it'll get easier. They had to leave their sheep. 
travel down and like boldly, courageously and, you know, looking kind of like idiots if it wasn't the way the angel said, go and see. They had to risk something. They got invited and they went urgently. There's this urgency in them. This is important. This is the most important thing. They didn't want to just know about Jesus. They didn't want to just read the headline. They wanted to see him for themselves. They want to experience him. And I mean, I was, so I was getting ready for this Sunday, this week, on Thursday. And I was sat there, you know, just like reading bits of scripture and thinking about it and praying and jotting things down. I was like, how, how can I talk about this and not feel like I have to stop and just go and spend time with Jesus? I actually felt convicted. And so I got up out of my office and I walked in the garage, okay? And it, like Thursday's very quiet, the lights were off, the tree lights were on, all of them, one's died, kind of sad. I have to resurrect that for next week. Um, but, but beautiful, the light's off, but just the tree light's on. And you know what? I just did the simple prayer. Just like walking around this room, just like, Jesus, I'm here. Jesus, I've come for you. I haven't come to pray about Sunday. I haven't come to pray about a sermon. I've just come for you. And you know what? Like in that moment, immediately, it's like God just wrapping my heart up in his spirit and saying like, yes, I'm with you. And I want you to know like praying that prayer, that's not like a super spiritual thing that you need to be really experienced to do. That prayer is the first prayer I ever prayed. I remember being at church and sort of figuring out like, I think this Jesus thing is real. Like, what should I do about this? And someone's saying to me, you know, just go home, sit on your bed, open your hands and say, Jesus, I want you. Like, there's no magic words, but just like open yourself to the fact that Jesus can be encountered. It's such a beautiful thing to do. And as much as you can do it on your bed and, you know, you can wander around a dark room and you can do it anywhere. This is one of the beautiful things about gathering as a church. Like what we do on a Sunday is so important because there are so many distractions from those manger moments. So many, so many distractions from the possibility of an angel being like, hey, there's actually, can you go, there's something I want you to see. But what we do on a Sunday is we push back the distractions and we help each other. Like we pray, we lean in, we see God's gifts operating in our community to help us lock on to this reality that Jesus is here and he presents himself to us to be interacted with, to be talked to, to be heard from to be experienced, to have his power shape us, heal us, transform us. That's why Sundays are so important, so be beautiful that we have a rhythm of pushing into that. And then you know what the shepherds did next? Like they experienced it, the very next thing they did, let's go tell everyone about this. They were so impacted by what they had experienced that they knew other people needed to know about it too. So amazing. So beautiful. Like, doesn't that lift your wonder about what Jesus is doing? What God is doing? This divine priority of reaching ordinary people like you and me. Not just being willing to, but inviting it. 
pulling us, drawing us towards it. And that's the call of this Advent. You know, we've talked about pushing back on all the cultural weirdness, all the baggage of Christmas. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm just not content to like get another Christmas card with the word peace on it and be content to be reminded that like, yeah, there's some peace in my life. I'm kind of grateful for that. You know, or like have the word joy written on something on the wall and think like, yeah, like I like joy. You know, I'm really glad that I am, I'm pro joy. I celebrate that. <laughs> it's not enough. Like why celebrate the fleeting glimpses of these things when we can actually go to the manger and spend time with our king who has become a human to communicate himself to us. That is the call of Christmas. And God's, God's calling you afresh. He's calling me afresh to come and see, to come and spend time with him. Will you stand with me? What I want to do today is actually go straight from that come and see call into communion. Could you share a cup with me so I can do it with us all? <laughs> Thank you. So if you can just grab your cup. Mo Molly mentioned this uh, when we were praying uh, just before the gathering, uh, that actually come and see is very close to something that we see in Psalm 34, which is the invitation to taste and see. See, God being this way, God inviting us to come and experience him is not a new idea. Like all the way back in Psalm 34, thousands of years before, God said, taste and see that I am good. Like I want you to know, not just about it, but I want you to experience that I am good. And this is one of the important things about communion. Jesus offered himself for us because he loves us. And he set in motion us regularly doing this because we need to experience afresh him offering himself and us receiving him. What a beautiful rhythm we have. It's another one of those rhythms that reminds us and sets before us the, the possibility of encountering Jesus. So I'm just gonna pray for us and then in our little groups, we'll read those words of profound truth over each other about what we're actually doing as we take the bread and the cup. So Jesus, thank you that you are this amazing God who offers himself to us. You are the God who reveals himself. You are the God who makes himself known. And you are so desperate to make yourself known that you became a human being like us, embodied in sinful flesh to redeem us and rescue us and heal us. And Jesus, ultimately, you would die for us. Your body would be broken. Your blood would be shed because you are so desperate to reach us in our brokenness and save us. Jesus, do not let us pass by your call to come and see you, to draw close to you, to come to where you are and experience you. Show us, Jesus, how to do that. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.